I've always been involved in the arts. I was always a maker as a kid. And I always collaborated with other artists. I mean, I was saying last Sunday that I was just as excited tonight about where I'm at in my career as I was when I was 21 years old. I'm still hungry. I still am curious about new ideas, new, new ways of thinking, making. It's just great. That's Chicago-based artist Nick Cave. He's one of the artists who was chosen for the Art in Embassies program. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. The Art in Embassies program is unique in the diplomatic world. Its aim is to engage, educate, and inspire global audiences, showing how art can transcend national borders and build connections among peoples. A public-private partnership, Art in Embassies engages over 20,000 participants globally, including artists, museums, galleries, and universities. Professional curators create and ship about 60 exhibitions per year to U.S. embassies all around the world. Most of these works are on short-term loan. However, since 2003, over 58 permanent collections have been installed in the department's diplomatic facilities globally, with a focus on contemporary art and artists from the United States. Together, these temporary exhibitions and permanent collections provide international audiences with a sense of the quality, scope, and diversity of American art and culture. In the last decade as part of the program, more than 100 artists have traveled to other countries and collaborated with local artists to produce works now on display in embassies and consulates. One of these artists is Chicago-based sculptor and performer Nick Cave. Nick Cave, whose background is in fabric arts, fashion design, and dance, is known for his colorful, elaborate costumes that he calls sound suits. Combining art, dance, and fashion, sound suits have reminded viewers of Mardi Gras costumes or African masquerade robes. Sometimes they're made of twigs. Others are made of thousands of buttons. And still another was constructed entirely of Beanie Babies. The height of the sound suit is frequently magnified by extravagant headgear, like a domed miter that a bishop might wear. When they're worn, sound suits often swoosh or rustle, so that the movement of the suit results in a kind of music. Nick Cave came to Washington, D.C. for a 50th anniversary celebration of the Art in Embassies program, where I had a chance to speak with him. I began our conversation by asking Nick to describe a sound suit in his own words. You know, a sound suit is uh, a sculptural form that is applied to the body. The form is made out of materials, a surplus that is a accumulation of thousands of one object, the same object. What makes sound is when you put it on and you start to move. And the materials may create a rustling sound. For example, that could be created out of twigs. Or if it's all out of raffia. Or it could make a tingling sound, which could be where an entire sculptural form is covered in buttons. So it's really the material 
and how it's applied to a surface. And it's very visceral, so there's a lot of texture. And when you touch it, it has depth, it has dimension. But the extraordinary thing is, is that you can stand still and it can be silent. Or the moment you start to move, it can make noise from the fact of it rubbing against itself or you jumping up and down. Now, do you design them to to be seen on a form in a gallery or in a museum, or are they really designed for people to wear as part of a performance? You know, as uh, you know, as I've been doing research and as I continue to look at ceremony on ritual sort of costume dress from around the world. You know, I have to remember that I'm looking at these artifacts that have been pulled out of environments and out of cultures and placed into a museum setting so they become static. So I'm forced to look at them as an object, not as the way in which they may function within a particular cultural And so that sort of has led me to think about the duality of it as a sculptural form, as a static object, as well as the potential of it being brought to the body and moved and used through this performance venue. There is a difference. It's a different type of orchestration in terms of how they're constructed when it's for performance. I've got to take into consider the stress that is brought to the the object, the materials, what can hold up to movement, to just these various stress points. So it does take a different type of way of thinking and making. It's interesting because I've seen your work, I've been fortunate enough to see your work in performance, and I've seen your work in galleries. And I have to say, when it's in galleries, I always keep wanting to touch it. It's very hard not to. Right. You know, And I think in, in the gallery, what I hope that's happening when one is viewing the work is that it's really about providing this dream state this ability to look at it and just imagine what is it, what role does it play within the larger scheme of things, how does it move, what is the weight of it. And you're confronted with the unfamiliar because it's really sort of this hybrid. Maybe there's an element that's Haitian influence, but it also could be me looking at the miter hat from a Catholic uniform, or it could be me looking at an astronaut suit, but putting these all together to come up with this new sort of shape. What I find really interesting about your work is that, I'm talking quite specifically now about scene in a gallery, Mm -hmm. is that it invites me both inside and outside at Mm -hmm. the same time, Mm -hmm. imagining what it looks like moving, but then I imagine what it would be like being in it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, being in it, the thing that's amazing is that, and really what the work is about, is that it hides gender, race, and class. So you're forced to be confronted with something that is unfamiliar. It can't be categorized. 
you know, we tend to live in a world where we want to, we want to be able to find its placement. And here I think it's, it's its own origin, it's its own entity it, in, within itself, within its own world. But it's extraordinary to be inside because what it does as the wearer, it allows you the independence to move and to express yourself freely. It, it grows you. It literally is larger than life. And, you know, you get to express your body's past yeah, its body's it's limit. A, and it's a lot of demands that it places upon you. You know, my recommendation is that you don't put it on first. You set with it. Hmm. And you think through what perhaps is it going to feel like? What is the weight of it? You have to somehow come to a place where you're able to surrender, to move into this other sort of space within yourself. Because really it's about conviction. I don't want to know that there's a person in it as opposed to it has now become its living being, presence, self. So, you know, I recommend that when you put it on, you just settle and you slowly wait until you have made that transition before you then start to move. Because if you do not, you can really get a bit out of control mm. and lose your center, and then you sort of fall apart. It's almost like waiting until it becomes part of your skin. You've gotta, you've gotta come to the middle. Yeah. Now what inspired these? Well, you know, the first suit was a twig suit. And it was in response to the Rodney King incident in 92. Prior to that, I was doing large paintings and these constructions that started on the wall to the floor. But, and I'm grateful to have, you know, art as a means of expression. Because the Rodney King incident affected me so strongly that I really was struggling with myself as a black male and feeling that the moment that I step outside of the privacy of my home, I could be racially profiled. So it made me think about feeling discarded, dismissed, less than, uh, devalued. And so what I wanted to do was to sort of respond to that feeling. And uh, I happened to be in the park one day and I was just thinking about my emotions. And as I was reading more and more about the, the case, you know, I looked down and there was a twig and I thought, I don't know, I knew that that's what I needed to make this object out of. Because it spoke to me on those multiple levels, something that was dismissed, discarded, irrelevant. Mm. And so I then made this sculpture which was a pant and a jacket. I didn't even think I could put it on. I don't know what was going on in my head. I was just thinking of it as a sculptural form. And then once I put it on, I started to think about it functioning as a suit of armor, something to protect my spirit from the outside world. And then when I started to move in it, I started to think about the role of protest. In order to be heard, you've got to speak louder. So it just started unfolding more and more references and connections to the role of 
an object, the role of a form that it's unfamiliar, the uncomfortableness within that, the conversation within that. And, you know, it was a bit scary. Mm. And so I thought about, you know, it's difficult, you know, when you're crossing the street and you hear someone's car door locks going off and you're just like, it's a little strange. But this is how I sort of was able to come to this form. And then from that point forward, I've always, I've made a very conscious decision to always make the work out of discarded materials. And that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Why that decision? Because you know what? At the at the same time, there's a lot of humanitarian sort of efforts that I brought to my work that subconsciously I wasn't even aware of. And that being one that I'm interested in the ideas around this excess in terms of surplus. Uh, I'm interested in just the amount of things that we sort of throw away and and yet there's other alternative ways in which they can be sort of reintroduced back into the world. You know, it's interesting because there is a sense of play in the art that you produce and a sense of play in the way you want to nudge different categories back and forth. Mm -hmm. And I think one often thinks of play as frivolous rather than as a quite serious way to mm-hmm. approach art, but also politics, life. Yeah, you know, and that goes, I think, to some of the forms that I have uh, created within the work. There's a shape that looks like the shape of a missile that I use in, in developing some of the sound suits, but that shape comes from me sort of looking at ideas around power, power and dress. And so I was looking at the Klan's uniform, that the shape of, of the headgear, the shape of a missile, the shape of the miter head, the shape of a condom. And intersecting these four ideas brought me to this sort of form. And so I look at that form as this sort of high priest of sorts. It just has this presence about it that is very larger than life, in a sense. So, you know, I'm looking at that. I'm looking at ways in which I sort of choose to move through the world. I mean, there is a number of suits that are made out of these uh, sifters, the, the facade, the face of it, are made out of these large sort of sifters. And the sifters are covered in wire and bugle beads. But you can see through it. And then the rest of the entire garment is constructed out of buttons, found shell buttons. And so what I'm doing is sort of censoring and and filtering how I move through the world. So it's me sort of setting up these sort of arrangements or circumstances that I perhaps may fall into. How do I prepare myself to sort of exist within that moment and then sort of navigate within that, at the same time protecting my core? Like a series of negotiations. Mm-hmm. Hmm. As you said, you create these these garments, these works of art with found objects. Do you conceive of the design and then look for the objects, or do you let the objects 
tell yeah. you what they want to be. You know what? That's exactly what I do. I spend a great deal of time at flea markets, thrift stores, secondhand stores. And, you know, I have my staple objects that I sort of collect that I need for a lot of my work. But then I, there's always the new materials that occur. And basically, that is the beginning of a new piece. It's the object is the negotiator. It's what provokes. It's what enforces. It's what triggers a new idea. I don't sketch. So it really is that thing, that object that I find that will just set me on fire. Sometimes I'm crazed. I have no idea why, but I think what I do is that when I look at objects, I look at the potential that lies within it. That, yes, it may function as this, but does it have the ability to provide multiple readings? And that's when I know that it's a go. They're so labor-intensive. Now, do you have people who work with you? Yeah, I have a team in the studio that works with me, and they all come from that sort of skill base. You know, a lot of the ways in which we approach the construction is looking at couture sensibilities, how a garment is built. Majority is all hand-built. On occasion, we may sew something on the machine, but most of it's pretty much hand-built and put together by the handwork that we do. And nothing is glued. Never, ever, never. And then I work with a number of fabricators that may build the apparatuses that are needed for the work, or they may build the sculpture component that, that, that is then supported by the figure. So we're back to collaboration. Oh, yeah. You know, and also in the studio. The studio is a collaboration. It's me sort of working with the team, and we sort of come together. We, uh, you know, I talk about the next body of work, what my intent is, how I want it to be uh, developed, to inform them on what we're working on currently is here, right in front of us. But I like to keep everyone thinking about the next project down the road so that as we arrive to it, they already have prepared themselves. So it's a number of wheels turning at the same time. Now, you also teach. Mm-hmm. What do you try to impart to your students in a classroom? You know, I teach at the grad level at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in the fashion department, and uh, I am the director of Fashion, Body, and Garment, which is the graduate program. So I'm working with a number of students that are interested in two different sort of directions. One is collection-based. The other is conceptual-based. But the, the core of this program is that they both need the support of the body in order to to help facilitate their ideas. So it's really quite fascinating to be able to be in a in a program where people working in these sort of in a disciplinary sort of ways. Some people are doing video work, some are doing performance work, some are making clothing, some are making objects, but it's the body 
which is the sort of infrastructure that they all need. And that's what's interesting. So what I do, you know, as an advisor, you know, I just try to build a trust within themselves. They've got to trust themselves in order to reach revelations. They've got to be able to carry out ideas. So, you know, it's it's not that the first idea works. It may be the 30th one that works. So you've got to sort of be up for failure. And I think failure is where the learning really begins anyway. Because if you're always trying to be perfect, what, what do well, you, you ever do? Yeah, right. And that's how I sort of really run my studio. It's I know what I'm doing, but I'm very loose about what happens as we develop a piece. I'm very much open to, at any given moment, it could take a different direction. Now, you also are committed and have always been committed to doing work in the community as well as in the academy. Talk Mm -hmm. about what drives that commitment. Well, you know, I wrote this quote down maybe 20, maybe 30 years ago, and it was, you know, I'm working toward what I'm leaving behind. And so that has been my my mission. That's the goal. That's the idea that I have in my head. But, you know, institutions, museums, galleries, that's great. You know, I love it. I do amazing projects in those settings. But not everybody gets there. And... I want to be able to, within a, let's say, an institutional sort of project, that there is this outreach component that is very important to me. I want to be able to bring my work into into communities and, and to, if anything, help motivate, help trigger, help jumpstart the sort of creative way of thinking about ideas around the the imaginary sort of space and place within our heads. And to also think of ways to get to these individuals, these communities that don't frequent the museums, a way to get them there. You know, start a project out in the community, but yet perhaps it's then performed within the museum institution or in both environments. So it's just something that really makes a big difference, really makes a big difference. Do you see the work you do in the community actually influencing your art? The work oh, totally. you produce, yeah. What it does for me, it just, it just sort of answers the questions in terms of what I'm interested in in my studio is the role of performer within my work. How does my work perform out there? It doesn't matter if it's in a museum setting or gallery setting or in the public realm. How does it perform? I don't learn about my work in the studio. I learn about my work once it leaves my studio. Over these past 20 years, how has your art, and particularly sound suits, how have they evolved? You know, I've set markers for myself. And what that means, for example, that there's a number of ways in which I work. You know, there's my... Gallery exhibitions, I'm with uh, Jack Shaman Gallery in New York. So, you know, every three, three, four years I do, a, I have a solo show. And so that becomes a marker. 
I have to rise to my own occasion. That is probably the most critical thing, is that I cannot and will not create the same experience. Secondly, I have these dream projects. And these dream projects are projects that are budgets that I possibly cannot ever create on my own and that are presented to me through various opportunities. And these are platforms that allow me to think outside of the box to create these ideas I could only imagine in a dream and to bring them to fruition. That's the other sort of way in which I work. And then right now I'm in the process, while I have already sort of moved a bit away from sound suits, and I'm moving more into just sculpture. You know, my body was sort of working through it, uh, has been for, for a while, I've been thinking about it, reflecting on it, and it's just naturally shifting, and I'm totally excited about the new work. Well, and that's my final question. What are you looking forward to? <laughs> you know, I'm looking forward to continuing to, to produce and make quality and strong work that can be a platform for the art world. Okay, Nick Cave, thank Thanks. you. That was Chicago-based artist Nick Cave. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from For Eric, Piano Study, from the album Metascapes, composed and performed by Todd Barton, used courtesy of Valley Productions. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, writer, producer, and Hollywood legend, Frank Price. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.